Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Wednesday, December 6th. I am uh, very glad you are here today. You know, um, we were talking Monday with Carly Wayne uh, about the situation in Israel and uh, why they were still holding certain female hostages. So, you know, because the big push was all the women and all the children. And there had been rumors, if not reporting, that they didn't want to release those women because those women had been raped and they didn't want to release those women so that they could then tell the world how they had been abused. Um, thought that was about as bad as it could get, but I was mistaken. <sighs> well, <clears throat> according to reporting in the Israeli Times, all of the women who have been released were sexually abused and raped. You know, there was reporting that as hostages were being released, they were being urged by various agencies and by the Israeli government not to talk about their captivity. The feeling was that if they talked about their captivity, they would jeopardize the negotiations. And now we know why. Because, apparently, many of them had been sexually abused. And because um, people were worried what Hamas would do if they started looking like rapists on the world stage, that they might, rather than release the remaining hostages, just execute them or keep them and just simply not release them. There is reporting today that three senior officials in the Biden administration talking about information that was available to them, telling reporters that Hamas is not releasing the remaining women hostages because not only that they sexually abused them, but one official said they think Hamas is keeping these women in order to continue raping them. Isn't much to say about that. Don't listen to any talking head or politician who talks about these rapes and then goes on to, you know, oh, this is bad, this is awful. But, this is bad, this is awful. However, no, no, a thousand times no. This is not a whataboutism. Yes, I've seen the pictures coming out of Gaza, and they are horrific. They are horrific. And you know what? 
The pictures coming out of Gaza and what those people are going through is horrific. Full stop. I'm not going to say to you, oh, it's horrific, but, you know, it's horrific. However, no, because sometimes politicians do this because they don't want to make anybody mad. You know, they don't, oh, my God, I don't want to be seen as pro-rape, but I also don't want to be seen as, you know, pro-Israel or anti-Palestinian. So I better say, well, rape is bad, but no, what's happening to the kids in this region is awful, full stop. The way Hamas has treated the women hostages is awful, period, full stop. No but, no however, no what about. Full stop. Because, you know what? I'm just a regular person. And when I hear somebody say, well, X, but Y, what they're saying to me is X isn't as, you know, they're not saying X is awful. They're softening it. Well, maybe it's justified or it's offset or it's not the only bad thing in the world. No, no, just no. What has happened to those women hostages, what may be happening to the women who are still in the control of Hamas, is nightmarish. It is inhuman. And that's all you need to say. That is why, um, Andy, I'm not going to play the sound clip because it just makes my blood boil every time, you know, um, Pramila Jayapal was on with Dana Bash, and Dana Bash was trying to get her to talk about the rapes. And she did. Oh, rape is bad. Rape is horrible. Nobody likes rape. But, oh, yeah, I, I already said that, Dana. I didn't say that. I, I don't support rape. However, you know, you really have to keep in mind. Really? Was she trying to be all things to all people, not upset anybody with that answer? Because the way it struck me, and because it's, gone viral, the way it struck a lot of people, was that, yeah, rape is bad, but, you know, is it really that bad? Come on. I mean, there's lots of bad things. She even said at one point when when Dana Bash tried to pin her down more, well, you know, I'm not going to get into a hierarchy of awful or something like that. Like, I'm not going to say, well, rape is a 10, uh, but killing is a 7. You don't have to. Nobody was asking her to do that. She had the perfect opportunity to wax poetic about how she is horrified by what has happened and may still be happening to those women. End of story. Full stop. Not softening it, not whataboutting it, not howevering it. You know, it was like she was trying to be so above the fray, you know. I'm just, you know, looking at the big picture here. Sometimes you can look at the big picture. Sometimes 
you need to narrow cast. When you're asked a question about rape, and Dadabash even said, you know, she said, I asked you about rape, and you segued into Israel. Uh, this is... You know, I thought Trump was divisive. And he is. But we've kind of at least gotten used to where those lines are. And who are the people who are just so far gone, there's no getting them back. But this surprised me because I thought people were more aware, more sensitive. And you can... Here's, here's a newsflash. You can hold multiple ideas in your head at the same time. You can hate the Israeli government. You can think Israel is doing bad things. You can feel sorry for the Palestinian people. You can want a better life for them. And you can also say the terrorism of October 7th was horrific. None of those thoughts conflict with one another. And so many people have shocked me. It's like if you if you think one thought, then somehow the other thoughts can't coexist. I don't understand it. Never have, never will. And um, and we go on. So um, one thing that I did not get to play for you yesterday. And there is a whole backstory here. You know, George Santos, the Republican congressman, former Republican congressman from New York, who was uh, expelled from Congress this week, was renowned for um, (laughs) his lies and his corruption. And now that he is no longer in Congress, one of the ways he is making money is by recording cameos. Have you heard of cameo? Do you know what that is? Certain people who have a certain amount of name recognition, they sign up with this service called Cameo. It's online. And for whatever price they set, you can have them record a message like um, Rod Blagojevich. I don't know if he still is, but he was on it for a while. And um, so you can get the celebrity of your choice um, to wish your brother a happy birthday. You know, this is so-and-so. I just want to wish you a happy birthday. Obviously, uh, very wealthy A-list celebrities don't really need this. This it usually runs... Anywhere from like 75 to 100 bucks, sometimes a couple hundred bucks, depending upon how famous the person is and how much they think they can get. George Santos is now on Cameo. Recording wishes. So um, John Fetterman, the Democratic senator from Pennsylvania, he and his staff decided to have a little fun with that and also make a point about another senator, another legislator 
in Washington, Bob Menendez, the Democrat from New Jersey, who is also accused of um, acting as a foreign agent for Egypt and um, various other crimes. A lot of people think he should resign. When we come back for a break from a break, I'm going to share with you how those things conflated in a way that I think will put a smile on your face. We'll be back right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. So Democratic Senator John Fetterman from Pennsylvania thinks that Democratic Senator Senator Bob Menendez from New Jersey should be forced to resign from the Senate. Should, well, ideally should voluntarily resign from the Senate, though he has certainly said that ain't going to happen. Uh, but Fetterman thinks that he doesn't belong in the Senate. He's being accused of acting on behalf of Egypt without registering as a foreign agent, among other things. Among other crimes. And uh, John Fetterman and his people thought, you know, we want to um, shine some attention on this. So maybe we'll get uh, George Santos to send him some words of encouragement and kind of make fun of both of them at the same time. Uh, Monday night, John Fetterman was on CNN to talk about the fact that they paid for this uh, cameo video and the fact that he didn't really want people to lose sight of the point. And the point was that he thinks Bob Menendez should resign, should be ousted from the Senate. Listen to Fetterman on CNN. If you expel somebody like, you know, uh, George Santos, how can you allow somebody like, uh, you know, Senator Menendez remain in the Senate as well, too? Because I promise you that one of the main major differences between uh, representative, former Representative Santos and Senator Menendez is $300 million of munitions, you know, with Egypt as well, too. And uh, Santos is never uh, accused of being a, a foreign agent as well. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot more serious kinds of issues here. And we really need to expel Menendez in order just to be fair. But, you know, even the beleaguered need a little cheering up. So um, Fetterman, Fetterman's people got on Cameo and hired, not, of course, identifying themselves, I don't think, as the Fetterman campaign, uh, hired George Santos to do uh, a video cheering up. Bobby from New Jersey. Listen to this. Hey, Bobby. Uh, look, I don't think I need to tell you, but these people that want to make you get in trouble and want to kick you out and make you run away, you make them put up or shut up. You stand your ground, sir, and don't get bogged down by all the haters out there. Stay strong. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Uh, George Santos, I don't believe understood he was being hired by the Fetterman campaign, though, honestly, I really can't imagine that he would care. He also uh, didn't realize that Bobby from Jersey was Bob Menendez. (sighs) Which. Gave John Fetterman the opportunity. To make the point again that. We need to hold both parties and the people elected by them to the same standards. 
Now, in the House, they waited until there was an ethics report that came out on on Santos. And they kept him in the House of Representatives until then. There is an indictment against Menendez. I don't know if there is any kind of ethics investigation. But as Jamie Raskin said after uh, he voted the uh, one of the votes, there were three votes to oust Santos. Obviously, only the third was successful. But Raskin said, you know what? You can't just oust someone on the basis of the fact that they are allegedly guilty of something. You have to have something a little more concrete than that. So with Santos, they got a 56-page ethics report that said this guy is bad news, such bad news, and we found so much wrongdoing. We're sending our report over the de- to the Department of Justice because we think they're going to want to file more criminal charges. I guess um, there are, well, there are certainly Democrats that would like to see Menendez go. He has said he is not going to resign, and uh, that means that he probably will not be ousted from the Senate unless there is something really tangible like a conviction for uh, senators to hold their to hold their hat on to hang their hat on okay so um i am not a supporter of george santos in any way shape or form just as i was not a supporter of tommy tuberville Yesterday, he threw in the towel. Um, unless you are waiting to be, become a four-star officer or above, he's just going to let those objections go. And so some 400-plus military promotions were voted on last night as a block, as it normally happens. Tommy Tuberville, of course, was holding out because he didn't like the idea of the military providing time and money for a woman to transport herself to a state where abortion was legal if she wanted or needed one. thought that was a big problem. And when reporters asked him about it, he said, well, it was a draw. They didn't get what they wanted, and I didn't get what I wanted. And I was like, what? All they wanted was for you to stop doing this. And it seems to me by doing it, you gave them exactly what they wanted. I wasn't the only one who saw it that way. Former Senator Claire McCaskill was on uh, MSNBC, and uh, she put it in terms that she thought Tuberville might understand. Listen to this. Here's the thing. He said it was a draw. Coach, coach, I got news for you. (laughs) I'm going to speak in words you can understand. This was a draw, a lot like Alabama beating Auburn 62 to nothing and the last two points being a safety. You were tackled in your own end zone, and this is not good. You are in big trouble um, politically. You have no profile nationally other than being dumb enough to hurt our military when we are at a time of international crisis. Yeah. Yeah, he's trying to frame this as um, something other than complete capitulation. And part of the reason why I think Republicans behind the scenes were beating him up pretty badly. But the reporting is that Democrats were considering a procedural change that would basically 
allow them to vote on these promotions, even with the objection of a senator. And Republicans were very nervous about that because that would mean that everybody would um, would be able to do that. Republicans and Democrats, who's ever in charge of the Senate, would be able to make the, do this kind of a maneuver and cut somebody out. It would basically sort of decrease a senator's power. And uh, Tuberville said that to avoid that, uh, he was uh, he was doing this because he didn't want to see that procedural change take place. But, you know, for the last month or more, members of his own party have been speaking out very publicly. I think it, the first one I heard was the I can't, just blanked on his name. He's um, the Republican who I believe is head of the Foreign uh, Foreign Relations Committee. And um, and but he was the first. But then other Republicans came out and said, you know, they didn't want to just say, this is stupid, he shouldn't do it. So they would all say, well, you know, there are other ways to accomplish his goals. He's got to understand that, we, you know, this is a worthy goal, but we don't need to obstruct these promotions to do it. If Republicans were speaking publicly against Tuberville, I can only imagine that privately he was facing a tsunami of opposition from his own party. Hmm. <sighs> It is, it is, we live in interesting times, don't we? Interesting times. So we are getting ready to take a break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to talk to an author whose new book is Wrong, How Media Politics and Identity Drive Our Appetite for Misinformation. That's an important topic for 2024. Live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820. I uh, told you the title of the book a minute ago, but I'm going to repeat it. Wrong. How media, politics, and identity drive our appetite for misinformation. Danny Young is uh, the author. And is also a professor of communication, political science, and international relations at the University of Delaware and joins us now. Uh, Dana, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me on, Joan. Okay, I saw the title of your book and I thought to myself, we don't have an appetite for misinformation. Quite the opposite. We, own, we People just want the truth. Um, we want facts. We want to know what's real. Um, why, why do you, why do you say there's an appetite for misinformation? Oh, I wish, I wish that you were correct on that. I wish that we really were driven with truth and accuracy motivations. And, you know, of course, some of us are, and under different circumstances and conditions, we are more likely to be motivated for truth than under other conditions. Um, but really, we remember we are animals, and we are social animals, and we are here to survive, and we're here to reproduce, and to do that, we need to be in groups. And so what we really are looking to do is to um, look at the world motivated by comprehension, control, and community motivations. So we want to comprehend the world. We want to feel like we understand it. 
-hmm. even if we don't understand it correctly. We want to feel like we have control, even if we don't really. And we want to feel that we have community and are connected with community. So those actually are the things that drive us more than looking for empirical truth. So if I feel that I'm in control and I'm connected with my community, I'm willing to put up with maybe a little bit of um, spin or distortion? Is, is that the flip side of that? Absolutely correct. In fact, that, that was well said. And, you know, if, if there is information that makes you feel some agency and some sense of direction and it makes you feel like you have some power and it makes you feel like you are embracing the norm of your group, they, you're believing the same thing that they're believing. Even if that information is preposterous, it it will, you know, I, I apologize for the term, but it will trump any kind of accuracy <laughs> motivations that you may have, because ultimately it, it is what serves us in the moment. Um, and, and a lot of times that is information that is not a lot of times, but sometimes that's information that is untrue. Now, of course, there are times when this can be utterly devastating, right? We, we know this, the, the book focuses on two case studies looking at belief in misinformation related to COVID and belief in misinformation rate related to the 2020 election. And in both of those circumstances, there were deadly consequences, hugely deadly consequences from belief in COVID misinformation. And from, you know, belief in election misinformation, we witnessed what happened on, on January 6th, 2021. Um, now, belief in misinformation doesn't always have such dire consequences. Sometimes it's completely mundane. Right. Like I, I give as a trite example that I probably know deep down that the 32 anti wrinkle creams that I use on my face <laughs> are probably not helping. Right. Like I know somewhere in me that that's probably not true, that they're probably not helping. And yet I spend money dollar after dollar on these mm -hmm. creams. So because I want to feel like I have control over the aging process. Um, so, you know, these are the kinds of examples that I provide to explain the psychology behind it. But, of course, we're operating not just individually, but in a political, social and cultural system where the implications of wrongness can be quite dire. Well, I understand your example about the cream on Instagram. I see all these ads of a scientific breakthrough you know, uh, Jane Seymour telling me this will absolutely get rid of crepey skin. And I love Jane Seymour. She wouldn't steer me wrong. But in that <laughs> instance, I feel that I'm sort of participating in the misinformation. I kind of understand that it's probably not true. It's just that I really want it to be true. Um, are you yeah, yeah. when it comes to, say, politics, though, I'm not sure that people get the fact, like, if you really believe the election was stolen, I don't think you deep down believe it was a fair election and you just were hoping it was stolen. I think there are people who really, truly believe it was it was stolen. I think that that is I think that you're right, Joan. There are people who we know truly believe that it was stolen. Um, and part of the reason for that is if you have been fueled with 
information and, and disinformation about the potential threats that loom on the horizon if Democrats win the presidency. If you have been steeped in that kind of outgroup threat information, then you need to believe that Trump actually won. You need to believe that you were the rightful victor and that was stolen from you. Um, and yet, I do think that there, when we look at the polls on, you know, the, the you know, large percentage of Republicans that still report believing that the election was stolen, it's about, at this point, it's just under 70% in most polls of Republicans who report believing that 2020 was stolen. I, I have to imagine that for some of these folks, they do want it to be true. And because when we ask, you know, if you were presented with all of the following pieces of evidence, would you still believe that it was stolen? Um, I have some colleagues who are at MIT who had done some research and they asked, you know, if Trump lost his cases in, in various state courts, would you still believe it? And when asked hypothetically, you know, this was back in 2021, when asked hypothetically what would they do, many said yes, they would change their minds and they would say yes, okay, Biden won. When asked, you know, if uh, independent investigators looked and found that there was no fraud, would you change your mind? And some said yes, but not all of them. And then when those things came to pass, when Trump did lose in the state courts and when there was evidence that you know, the, there, there was no sizable fraud that would have changed the election result. These individuals did not change their minds. <laughs> so that to me suggests that something is going on because they have chosen to make this particular belief non-falsifiable. Nothing is going to update their belief, which, which suggests that they, they may well know that it is not a rational evidence-based belief. Non-falsifiable. How yeah. is it this? Is that something that they created in their own mind? Is that something that they got from Donald Trump, from other sources, from the media? Um, how do how do you get people to embrace something so intensely that it becomes non-falsifiable? So the non-falsifiability is really kind of the special sauce of conspiracy theories, because conspiracy theories, which the big lie, of course, is one. Um, conspiracy theories are centered on distrust and the notion that there are people in positions of power that are operating behind the shadows to help themselves and hurt you. And because they're rooted in distrust, any piece of information that could come to light that would disconfirm the conspiracy theory can also just be dismissed out of hand, right? Because if you, if, if you are distrusting, you distrust any source that would bring to bear some kind of disconfirming evidence. So that is how they are, um, some call them self-sealing, non-falsifiable. They are unable to be proven wrong because you can always say, oh, well, that disconfirming evidence, it actually comes from someone who is in on the conspiracy, okay? Oh. But... There's something bigger going on underneath all of this, which is at the heart of the book, which is the role of social identity in driving misinformation beliefs. And when we have a social identity that is really salient in our minds, when we think of ourselves as part of a particular team, and we have come under the impression that our team is under threat, 
which is kind of what happens when you are in a partisan media environment that highlights threat from the other side regularly. You're coming to define yourself in terms of this political mega identity. And when that happens, you are going to tend to be more driven to believe information that is good for your team and bad for the other team. So while Trump himself was giving, you know, disinformation about the big lie while he was spending months throughout 2020 talking about how, you know, there's there's going to be fraud. The only way I could lose is if Democrats cheat. Um, and then you have, of course, Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell on Fox and other places, you know, spouting all of these these lies really about Smartmatic and about um, Dominion voting machines, etc., that all of that just serves to bolster this identity driven set of beliefs that people really feel the need to hold on to in order to keep their sense of a, like a social community or or to to maintain a presence in that community. I was talking to somebody, oh, several months ago. And I said, well, like, you know, if it, when it comes to something like QAnon and there's this whole laundry list of just really outrageous things. Um, and I said, are you telling me every person believes every one of those things? And they said it doesn't matter. They can't even if there's even if there's ideas on this list that don't make sense to them or they don't agree with it. They cannot voice those thoughts because a lot of these groups, it's all or nothing. You're either one of us mm -hmm. or you're not. And if you believe one, two and three, but you don't believe four, you are not one of us. Yeah. Is that what kind of thing so you're talking about yeah. here? Yeah. And, and, you know, that QAnon example is a really powerful one because we know the sort of devastating and violent effects it has had. And we also know that it has broken families apart and there are relationships that, you know, might never be repaired. Now, I would just say that same kind of dynamic, the idea that you're all or nothing, we are finding um, on the part of really strong partisans. And it is asymmetrical. It is more likely to be found uh, on the right than the left. However, and, you know, I, I challenge your progressive listeners to, to sort of think about, is it possible that there are some beliefs that you may hold that aren't totally in line with the party or with a progressive ideology? Do you hold some positions that maybe are slightly more nuanced, you know, maybe on the Second Amendment or maybe on abortion? And if so, do you sometimes keep that quiet because of fear of some kind of judgment from your team? Mm. And if so, realize that that is also doing democracy a disservice because then you are not honestly contributing to the information environment in the nuanced way that it deserves. We, what we end up is it, we end up with these impressions of these really stereotypical partisans that are all or nothing. And I think that that is really oversimplifying and creating an even worse divide when it comes to how we think about our politics. Wow. We um we've gotten a, a caller who has a question for you, if you don't mind. Uh, Jim sure. is calling in from Chicago. Go ahead, Jim. You're on with uh, um, me and Professor Young. Yes, Professor and Joan. Will we ever be in a, a period in history where we'll be able to recognize the truth? 
or is this just a phenomena of, uh, of this uh, particular Are we person? Be like this ever, forever. I mean, is this going to be forever? We're ever going to ever be able to recognize the truth. All elections will be in doubt. Uh, we'll tear ourselves apart because you won't believe the uh, results of an election. And this is just this is all fall at the uh, feet of Trump because I don't recall ever seeing people that believe absolute nonsense. I've never seen this. I'm in my seventies, uh, Professor. I mean, I mean, I expect to live this till I till I finally shut this moral coil. We'll, we'll never be able to recognize truth again. That's my question. Yeah, that's and a good question. Thank you for taking my call. Thank, yeah. thank you for taking my call. So Jim actually has two questions in there. Jim is asking, you know, will we ever recognize the truth? And a second question is, you know, are we going to continue to have people who doubt the outcome of elections and we're just going to be mired down in these debates over whether or not elections are legitimate? So let's take that first one for a second. Um, One of the things I like about using the scientific method to study some of these dynamics is that scientists are always working in pursuit of truth, but assume that they've never definitively landed on ultimate truth. Okay, so scientists never remove themselves from doubt. They always have a theory. They try to falsify it. They try to break it. They see if they break it, and they move on from there. So we assume we're getting perhaps closer to truth, but we never assume that we've landed on it definitively. And that kind of approach is um, emblematic of something called intellectual humility, which we can all practice, which is simply constantly living, um, acknowledging that you might be wrong. There could be other information or evidence that might show up that might, you know, change your mind. And you have to be willing to let it update your, your beliefs. That second piece, though, of Jim's question about are we just on this steady path to where people distrust institutions and and elections are always contested? I have to believe that the answer is no, because there are ways to rebuild trust. And I in the book, the second half of the book is about how our political and media institutions really exploit social identity, sometimes intentionally, sometimes accidentally, and cause us to move you know, farther and farther apart and to see the world the way we want to see it. But one of the solutions that I, I am really confident about is going local. When you look at what happens when people have local independent journalism – that focuses on their own communities. One, it takes them out of the culture war narrative. Two, it gets people to think of themselves as civic, basically in terms of a civic identity that is independent of partisanship. And if you can bring people to trust their local election workers, trust their local process, trust the people in their communities who are making decisions, that has amazing effects. And unfortunately, in many of our local communities around the country, they're not served by independent local newspapers anymore. You know, hedge funds have come in and gobbled up the newspapers and hollowed them out. Maybe they don't have any. Uh, Or maybe those newspapers have been supplanted by 
online, quote-unquote, local news sites that are actually, in most cases, if they're fraudulent, they are um, done with a conservative frame. So they present, they purport to present local news, but they do so with a conservative frame. If we had independent local journalism, people would have the opportunity and the incentive to think of themselves as civic participants in a system that that they have stake in and where they can then develop trust. They can feel that they have skin in the game. They can feel that their voices are heard. And once that happens, it does change the calculus of all of these other dynamics downstream. It is so fascinating to hear you say this. What you have just described is the is the mission, is the underpinning of a, of a new group of a new journalism group called the Courier Newsrooms. I think they're only in 10 or 11 states right now, but that is exactly what they believe that you need to go hyper local and you're not going to be browbeating, browbeating people with a message. You know, maybe most yeah. of the time you're going to give them the 10 best places to get hot chocolate or here's 17 fun things to do this holiday weekend. And they they give people this sense of community and they know the local landscape. And then as part of that, they will have something, an article that you know, has a point of view on a particular policy issue or explains something that's going on in their state government. But because they have made that connection, that human connection and developed that it just exactly what you said, that sort of level of trust, they find that people are more open to the ideas that they then blend in with all of this and want to share because the the first thing exists they are open to the second thing it is so interesting to hear you describe what is basically their whole model for trying to reach people with um liberal and uh, progressive ideas i interview a lot of courier newsroom reporters and political editors um here on my radio show because You know, I can't pay attention to every little thing that's happening in Iowa or Arizona. Yeah. And I bring them on and it's like, you know, here's everything you need to know about us and our state. They really are. Yeah. It's just so amazing to hear you say that because there is an organization that agrees with you and is trying to build that up. And, you know, there are philanthropic organizations that are working in this same direction, uh, realizing that what we really need is to find a way for for all citizens to have local independent uh, accountability journalism too. That's that's holding their local officials to account. When you when you look at the the regions of the country that are news deserts that are not served by any local paper. You're talking about some of the most conservative places in the country, and you're talking about places where trust in government and media is often the lowest. And I think to myself, you know, if I lived in a rural location and the only news sources that I had were news sources that, you know, came from New York and L.A., I'd say, what do these people know about me? What do they understand about my life? And I think that the the Fox model, even though they are in New York, right, the Fox model says, no, 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 but we speak your language. 
we understand you. And I, I am sympathetic to that kind of um, attraction to that kind of ethos. If you feel that, you know, there, the, nobody really understands your way of life or your, or your values. Um, now, I think for the, in the Fox case, I think it's very cynical. We know it's cynical. We know it's profit motivated, motivated, and we know that it is all about identity threat. We know, we've always known, but through the uh, Smartmatic or through the uh, Dominion lawsuit, we saw the text messages and we saw what happened when the folks at Fox in their newsroom who were actually charged with reporting truth, which they did do. They were the first to call Arizona for Biden. And they call, you know, once they called the election, then their opinion shows, you know, their outrage shows that are on the air between 8 and 11 that make all their money. Those hosts were in a panic because the entire <laughs> narrative, right, the entire narrative was then destroyed. So then they had to decide, are they going to go in the direction of empirical truth? And, you know, reporting on institutions as they exist, or are they going to try to stop the slow bleed of their viewers to Newsmax and One America? And unfortunately, they did the latter and they doubled down on the election lie. But it was strategy. It was deliberate. One thing that I want to ask you about um, with this, I mean, we've talked about, you know, social identity. Um, I believe that there is some always some self-interest here, but a lot of the people who were adamant and were going on television defending Donald Trump and defending the big lie, um, suddenly they're part of these indictments. Suddenly they're cutting deals with prosecutors and uh, suddenly they're singing a, a different tune. One person who comes to mind is uh, she was a spokesperson, Jenna Ellis. And when she was on television, she was combatively defending Trump and talking about all the information and all the lies. And then and then when she got in trouble, it was a whole different tune. We actually have the statement of. her making the statement that she made to the judge. Andy, could you play that now? In the wake of the 2020 presidential election, I believed that challenging the results on behalf of President Trump should be pursued in a just and legal way. I endeavored to represent my client to the best of my ability. I relied on others, including lawyers with many more years of experience than I, to provide me with true and reliable information, especially since my role involved speaking to the media and to legislators in various states. What I did not do, but should have done, Your Honor, was to make sure that the facts the other lawyers alleged to be true were in fact true. In the frenetic pace of attempting to raise challenges to the election in several states, including Georgia, I failed to do my due diligence. I believe in and I value election integrity. If I knew then what I know now, I would have declined to represent Donald Trump in these post-election challenges. I look back on this whole experience with deep remorse. For those failures of mine, Your Honor, I have taken responsibility already before the Colorado Bar who censured me, and I now take responsibility before this court and apologize to the people of Georgia. Thank you. Professor Young, wow. she just didn't know. She didn't know it was all a lie. Don't you understand? Well, don't, you, don't you feel sorry for her? I'm so sorry. <laughs> I know I was a Trump warrior, but I just didn't know. 
Oh, I know, and she gosh. she was she's she's so young and inexperienced, and she turned I to John Eastman, sure and she trusted true, him. And I did, and I'm so sorry. I went on and fought and argued and promoted, and it was all a lie. But I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I really, I I wish that I could be a fly on the wall and really know what got her to turn and what were, and I also, you know, I, I'm a social scientist. I'm like, why is she crying? Is she crying because she feels bad or is she crying because she was caught? And mm-hmm. my husband is, is a homicide prosecutor. And he says, defendants are often crying because they were caught. Yep. He said, that is in my experience, that is what it is. And I'm like, wow. Boy, you could read that differently if you really believed in the good of humankind. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I don't know. I wish that I knew what it is that made her change her mind, and what you know. How do you put? How do you do an intervention at scale so that everyone changes their mind? And I think it's that the stakes, that, you know, believing and insisting that she was in the right uh, became politically and personally disadvantageous for her. Yep. And and that that's it. That is it at the end of the day. So I think I just I just want to make sure that you know when we think about ways to approach folks like this especially as we enter the 2024 election season one thing that I think is really tempting is to mock and insult and say, you know, people who support Trump, they're terrible, they're bad, they're this, they're that. Um, I don't think that that moves the ball forward at all, because what Trump has has earned from these folks is, you know, they they feel like he respects them. They Mm -hmm. feel like he sees them. And so... Professor Young, I would love to continue our discussion, but we are way, way past the end of our time. Uh, Thank you so much. We're obviously going to have to pick this talk up again uh, in the future because there's so much more to talk about here. Uh, Professor Danny Young, the book is wrong. How media politics and identity identity drive our appetite for misinformation. Uh, Thank you for being here. We are going to take a break for news. We are going to be back with so much more right after this. Because facts matter. You are listening to WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade. And if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. WCPT 820. You hear the ads here all the time. Total Dentistry is a big supporter of WCPT, and WCPT is a big supporter of Total Dentistry. We are doing a sponsored monthly segment with Anna Pellick, whose voice you hear on all those commercials, commercials that are so interesting and paint such a great picture of her practice that my partner Ray now goes to total dentistry. He was like, you know, that uh, that woman sounds really nice. And he's one of those people who's really kind of leery of all of it. And uh, he is now her patient. Uh, we welcome Anna Pellick uh, to join us and talk about some of uh, the issues of the day. But first, Anna, I wanted to say thank you for all that you've done for my partner. Oh, well, thank you, Joan. And it's a pleasure to be on your show again. I always enjoy We, um, I had uh, reached out to you um, a while back about this outing because 
I have a lot of questions about amalgam fillings, also known as silver fillings, but they're not really silver, are they? Correct. Uh, Amalgam is actually a mixed alloy of different metals. And depending on when you go back in history, it's a combination of mercury, um, silver, uh, back in tin, copper. But it's a mixture of different metals uh, over time. And mercury was one of the main contents of silver fillings. So silver fillings go back as far as uh, 618 A.D., if you want to backtrack wow. in history, all the way to China and from China to Germany and from Germany to England and from England to the U.S. And back in, I think it was the 1800s, uh, that's when it basically came about in the U.S. And it was a combination of silver filings of silver coins. Wow. Huh. It's a very interesting history. Um, and as time progressed, uh, the higher the mercury content, the more stronger the material became. But actually, uh, as you find over time, uh, there are issues with it. And, uh-huh. you know, as knowledge and research gets better, we discover more and more things about amalgam fillings. And I, I remember... I, when I was much younger, there was this big, um, I probably when, I don't know what the white material is, porcelain or something, when those fillings became widely available, it seemed like everybody was like, oh, my God, you've got to get all of your amalgam fillings. You've got to get them all out of your mouth. They're not good for you. And then the ADA came out and they were like, you know, guys, don't panic. It's not a problem. These are not going to hurt people. Um, and um, and the reason that I wanted to talk to you about this is just within the last few months, I was reading an article about the fact that there has been a big uptick in Parkinson's diagnoses in this country. And the article gave all kinds of possible reasons for this. And one of the reasons was um, mercury exposure. And were people being exposed to mercury through their fillings, and was that in some people triggering, or at least with other factors, leading to a diagnosis of Parkinson's? And so now I just want you to tell me, you said that the amalgam-type fillings have been put together with different types of compounds over the years. What If you get an amalgam filling now, what is, what's in it now? Uh, well, typically, it's relatively the same. Um, as of right now, it's typically, again, it's the mercury, the silver, copper, um, tin. So the problem with amalgam fillings is that basically it corrodes with time. It's called micro-leakage. You mean it rusts? Because <laughs> it's a alloy, it combines with your saliva, and it sets off different electrolytes, and those electrolytes will actually corrode the amalgam. That's why they're nice, shiny, and silver when when they start out in your mouth, and then they turn black, right? Yeah. And a lot of teeth, when you have the silver fillings, turn grayer and grayer over time. So as the mercury, you know, and the filling corrodes, not only does it, and, and you chew, it leaks mercury vapors. Those vapors go into... The pores of your tooth, they go into your bloodstream via under your tongue, in your cheeks, etc. And that 
is where the issue uh, begins with what we call neurotoxicity or damage to cell membranes. And there is a lot of different articles that actually show mercury uptake in cell membranes and the destruction of the cell membranes um, because of mercury. And that's where they contribute the, I wouldn't say direct effect, but it does contribute to breakdown in, in the cell membrane and neurons. And does that lead to issues with Alzheimer's or Parkinson's? You know, yeah, again, when you think about the history of silver filling, and, and I like to kind of go back in time, and I think it's so important for people to look at different events that have occurred over the years. And when you look at history, it was back, I think it was in 18, the 1800s, um, that actually at that point, silver fillings were actually banned by a certain group in history. Uh, it was an oral surgery group in New York. And then because of different events, that group got debanned. The ADA became existent, and they said that there was no direct effect or, or issues with silver fillings. And for years, most people do fine. But again, when you've had a silver filling in your mouth for 20 years and you're chewing for 20 years, everyone knows silver fillings don't last forever. There is micro leakage. They can crack. Doing as those vapors are released go into your system. So two things to look at. One of the reasons people looked at silver fillings and mercury is because dental practitioners, the staff, had issues with mercury toxicity when we used uh. to squeeze. And there were health issues associated with that. So that was one that I thought was very interesting in the period of time, the history, right? So that led to research. You know, why were the doctors getting different neurological disorders? You know, and a lot of it was blood-related and renal-related. There weren't direct or research at the time to directly relate it to the brain or neurotoxicity. But there were side effects, and there were higher levels found in the blood. As time goes on and we do more research, we find that chewing itself and the release of the mercury vapors goes into our mouth. Now, when you look at that, you think of, well, you know, how absorbent is the tissue under your tongue? You give nitroglycerin pads to people when they have a heart attack under their tongue because it's one of the quickest absorbing surfaces. Large surface in the area goes directly to the bloodstream. So if you're chewing and you're getting this release of mercury vapors, what effect will that have long term? And there's a very interesting video that I always refer to as it's by the uh, International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. And it talks about mercury poisoning symptoms and how it actually, in, in within seconds, degenerates the end uh, of the neural tubes or your cell membrane and prevents things like DNA production, you know, RNA production, and how that would affect the brain. It affects different, you know, proteins from binding that we need for cell function and how that affects the brain. So is there a direct effect? You know, no one, I, I don't think anyone, that, any research that I have seen actually states there's a direct effect. But I think when you put all these little pieces together, you start going, hmm, you know, this is not the best, the best material for me. And especially in today's day and age, we have so many other options. 
Now, in I think it was in uh, 2008, they banned silver fillings in children under six. 2008. So, does it still exist? They've banned silver fillings in pregnant women. Why? You know, in about two years ago, I believe, uh, it was mandated that all dental offices have amalgam separated because they found that the dental offices were the largest source of mercury sewage in the sewage plant. So now have these separators, which actually, when you take out a silver filling, it goes into a certain, you know, container that is dealt with separately to make sure that that material does not go back into our environment. Wow. Wow. So you start looking at all the data and, you know, obviously common sense tells you, well, okay, Maybe silver's not the best thing for me at this point in time, right? Because of all the other materials that we have available. The the problem that, you know, Alzheimer's is quite prevalent. So statistics show that I think people, it's one out of 14 for people that are uh, in the 60 category and one out of six when you're over 80. When you go back to how many people during that time had silver fillings, because we don't use them now. I haven't used silver fillings since 87. So, you know, I, I, I don't use it in my career. So do they teach silver in school? Yes, they still teach it. Is it used in, you know, different dental offices? I've still seen it used. Um, but there's other options that I find that are a, a lot better for a person, you know, in this day and age. Anna, now, we need to I, take, I want to talk to you about those other options, and um, I have some more questions about these silver slash amalgam fillings. Um, this is our Total Dentistry sponsored segment, Anna Pellick from Total Dentistry, one of our favorite advertisers and one of our favorite human beings on the planet, is going to uh, join me again when we come right back after this. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Now back to Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We're talking to Dr. Anna Pellick from Total Dentistry. This is our monthly sponsored Total Dentistry segment. And we have been talking about silver slash amalgam fillings. Before we talk about what's new... Um, you know, obviously, there are a lot of people on my demographic, <laughs> which is old, Anna, um, who have gotten these over the years. I think the last time I needed a filling, I, you know, um, which I haven't had to do very often as an adult, but there was one time and I did go to uh, the porcelain. I don't know if it's porcelain. I call it porcelain, um, the white mm-hmm. stuff. And um, but because I had cavities as a child, I still have a lot of really old silver amalgam type fillings. And I'm, you know, and, and for a while people were saying, well, um, you know, you should get them all taken out and get them all replaced. Is there a number that is safe? Or perhaps I should say, is there a number of these fillings that you count in your mouth that is unsafe? Now, typically we replace them as they start leaking. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, with the acid in your saliva and, and the different 
created from the acidious saliva to the mixed silver filling. It becomes black over time. It lifts up from the tooth, so you get microleakage and sometimes decay under the silver. That's when we normally uh, replace them. So it's not like you have to rush in and get them all done at one time. However, if you are predisposed to MS, to other CNS disorders, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, you might want to think about getting them replaced sooner. Because, again, as I said, there are issues with mercury vapors creating neurotoxicity in the cell membrane, in the brain, and other areas of the body. So that being said, if you're predisposed to those systemic issues, it might be more advantageous for you to go and have them replaced sooner. For the average person, typically replace them as needed. You said you replace them as needed, but unless unless these unless these fillings fall out of my mouth, how do I know that you know they've exceeded their lifespan? With X-rays, well, the dentist would tell you that. So when we go in, we do our exams. We take a look at the margins of the silver filling. If they're lifting up from the mouth, if they're raggedy on the X-ray and no longer fit the tooth properly. That's the time to replace them. Ah, I, I see. And when you get um, um, a filling replaced, are you going to lose some tooth when that happens? Not necessarily. You can. It depends, obviously, if there's decay underneath the silver, then you have to remove No, I mean, just in, in taking the filling out, would you... Would you you know, if you're getting the filling drilled out, wouldn't they, ex- wouldn't they, you know, have to drill a little bit of your tooth out as well? Not necessarily. So the beauty of the white composite fillings is they're actually, silver fillings are held by what we call undercuts in the tooth structure. We remove more tooth structure with silver fillings than we do with the newer composite materials. The composite materials are chemically and mechanically bonded to your tooth where silver is totally a mechanical bond. So the white fillings actually require less tooth um, removal. A lot of times we can take out the silver filling and then replace the same surfaces with white so long as there's no decay or issues underneath the silver. Mm-hmm. And would the an problem- x-ray show you if you, yeah. had, if, you had, if you had a problem underneath your filling, would that show up on an x-ray or would that be something they discover sort of like, whoa, look what we got here? Uh, well, it depends uh, on the quality of the x-ray, mm-hmm. uh, but on the x-ray, especially with AI now on films, uh, you can see a lot with AI uh, or a CAT scan, um, but sometimes we do discover it once we take out the old silver. You know, mm-hmm. you can't always tell that you can't see through silver on an x-ray. You can uh-huh. see around the silver. Oh, yeah. Makes sense. Uh, that so, makes sense. Find it once we remove the silver, and then go from there. Yeah, but um, you know, it's it, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I, w- I was just going to say, I um I would never ever uh, get um a silver filling again. But then, you know, let's face it, <laughs> as an old person, chances are I'm not going to have uh, too many more cavities uh, in my mouth than what's already there. So, I mean, if you were somebody like me, would you go to your dentist and say, you know what, let's um, 
let's get rid of these. Let's get these um, guys out and we're going to replace it with composite. Typically, typically, most people end up replacing their silver fillings over time. You know, silver fillings on the average, what I'd say probably last maybe 10, 15, sometimes 20 years, depending on your saliva content and the erosion or corrosion factor. Uh, but most of the time, we do see silver fillings wear. So, and to be honest with you, the newer silver, um, I think it was as of 1976, they had a new formula for the silver fillings. And it released 50 times faster the mercury content and corroded faster. So some of the newer silver fillings that were out in the 1980s would actually corrode quicker than the older silver fillings. Um, and because of that, we end up replacing them. Now, again, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult for people to understand, but I, I personally would never have silver in my mouth. And, and for people, I, I personally, when I've taken out silver, I've seen teeth completely gray underneath. And that's because the mercury absorbs into the pores of the tooth structure. You know, uh, people have what we call amalgam tattoos in their mouth from when silver fillings were used before. And maybe there was a little spill of silver in the mouth and it's absorbed into the tissue. And it looks almost like a black and blue mark in the gum. Huh. Uh, yeah. I mean, so there are a lot of uh, indications of why silver fillings are not great. The question is, do you feel strong enough to replace them? And is it financially doable for you to replace them as well? You know, so those are the two questions that always come up with patients. Yeah. I, I do feel that if you are predisposed to MS, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, that is something you seriously want to consider because of the fact I've had people who have had, you know, MS uh, disorders and we've replaced everything that was, non-precious in their mouth, including silver fillings. And wow. that includes posts. Some posts are made out of, out of um, materials that are, are non-precious. We had to replace them because of the fact that all of that electrolytes and the toxicity of the materials affect their central nervous system. Dr. Pellick, we have a caller who has a question for you. Janet's calling in from Lindenhurst. Go ahead, Janet. Uh, Dr. Pellick's on the line. Hi there. One, I had my amalgam fillings removed about 40 years ago um, as a result of an, of an MS diagnosis. And I think it's one of the best things that I did when I had that done. And the doctor went in and he removed all the amalgam fillings and uh, rebuilt all the, the teeth that were there. He didn't have to do any major work, um, although it was long sessions as he worked on my teeth. Um, I have not since then had been aware of any other issues from that, and after about 10 years, the MS went away, and I don't know whether it's because the fillings, the amalgams were not there. Um, I had, I grew up in rural Wisconsin where we did not have any, um, any fluoride in the water, and so it was really bad. And so for people now as they're older um, with those kind of things, I, I no longer have those fillings, um, and I just want to let people know that it worked for me. I don't know what it was. It was not was it, well, I was yeah. insured at the time. Thank you for calling, Janet, because that's exactly what Dr. Pellick was talking about. Um, the the If you have risk factors for MS or have MS or Parkinson's, that this is definitely something to consider. Uh, Dr. Pellick, thank you so much for joining us today. I think uh, this has been really uh, informative and uh 
you know, I think that there's a lot of our audience out there that's going to be rethinking their uh, their dental practices going forward. Thank you. I know I will. (laughs) Well, I just want to add one quick thing. If people really want to uh, do a little bit of research and knowledge to make that decision, there is a lot of information on the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology. There's uh, two gentlemen, Dr. David Kennedy and Griffin Cole, that have written several papers and actually videos of the cell membrane and, and what caught, what, when they add mercury to that site, those sites. It's, it's very interesting to watch. And I, I think that will sway a lot of people into understanding why silver fillings, in my opinion, should be removed. Wow. Um, it, it's, it's really, it's worth it's, it's worth watching. I'm sure you can find it on YouTube or, you know, one of the platforms. Um, but it's within minutes. And so that makes you think, you know, heavily about what you want to put in your mouth. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Pellick, uh, her practice is totaldentistry.org. They're in Palatine. They're in Streamwood. And uh, they're on WCPT. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Pellick, for being here. Appreciate it. Wonderful day. Mm, bye-bye. We're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more after this. You know what time it is? Hello. Can you hear me? It's time to return to the best progressive talk show in Chicago. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Now on WCPT 820. I'm welcoming back political science professor Joel Ostro, and I want to make sure that you know the phone lines are open if you would like to join this conversation. 773-763-9278. Uh, there is a lot going on. Um, and strangely, there are um, some things that uh, affect Ukraine that are going on here in this country uh, in addition to the debate over whether or not Republicans are going to allow funding for Ukraine, there's um, also been a story in the Washington Post that the United States has brought a war crimes indictment um, against four Russian soldiers to help us wade through all of this. As all as always is Joel Ostro who is the political science Russia expert at Benedictine University and joins us now. Joel, how are you today? Doing well. Thanks for having me, Joan. It's always good to be with you. Always good to, to have you here. So let's start, if you, if you don't mind, with the, with the politics. It appears mm-hmm. that possibly Republicans in the Senate as well, but certainly Republicans in the House of Representatives are determined that they are going to use funding for Ukraine as a bargaining chip to get what they want when it comes to the border, even though one might say those are actually uh, two different things. But as one Republican senator said, as I, I'm going to I'm going to paraphrase here. Essentially, he said, um, Ukraine's the only bargaining chip we've got. <laughs> And so we have to sort of we have to take advantage of the situation uh, to get Democrats to move on some of our border proposals, because Chuck Schumer was like, guys, you know, like it's a separate issue. And they were like, yeah, but, you know, this is the only thing we can hold over your head. Uh, It seems 
like a terrible thing. You know, I understand how politics works and, you know, they feel that they this this puts them in a power situation. But the people of Ukraine, the country of Ukraine, I don't know, it just feels like it should be more than a bargaining chip. Joel, what are your thoughts? And that's not how politics uh, was conducted when our democracy was stable, when our democracy worked. Um, uh, the uh, scholars Steve Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt in their book How Democracies Die uh, talked about uh, and named the guardrails of American politics um, within and, and uh, guided by those guardrails um, which essentially boiled down to the country comes first and partisan politics comes second, uh, reflected in what is, was for uh, many, many decades an acceptance of Democrats by Republicans and vice versa, uh, that policy differences are one thing, uh, but we all support the truths we're, we hold to be self-evident. And when all that held, um, national security uh, was an area that, A, uh, the executive branch uh, had a uh, domain over, presidents controlled as commanders-in-chief and, and head of state, uh, and regardless of who occupied the office, both parties worked together to ensure that we presented a, a united and consistent and stable mm -hmm. and predictable front and foreign policy. Uh, and so it is time for us to remember uh, that Mitch McConnell deservedly earned the uh, the sarcastic and demeaning nickname Moscow Mitch uh, because his commitment was never to uh, the stability of our democracy, the functioning of our democracy, uh, or a united front in foreign policy. Uh, he was Mr. No. He has always been uh, part of the a leading force in the, in the destructive and extremist movement of the Republican Party, away from those guardrails, demolishing them, in fact, and, and making Congress a place where uh, partisan politics comes first and country second, uh, that power is everything, uh, and whether it is national security or, um, or the stability of our economy, our relationships with our allies, Really anything. Everything comes after uh, the fight for power. Uh, so he sees that there's a new Speaker of the House who has never once cast a vote in favor of supporting uh, Ukraine. Um, the Speaker of the House has been a consistent sycophant of Donald Trump's, uh, and, and the Republican Party's shift towards authoritarianism and and almost euphoric support for Vladimir Putin against the democracies, against our own democracy. Uh, and seeing that, uh, he is uh, now um, more publicly, even on the subject of Ukraine funding, um, um, playing that role again, where politics is strictly about the fight for power and has nothing to do with the interests of the country. It's disgusting, uh, and it's uh, incredibly destabilizing and threatening not only to us, to all of our allies, uh, and really to the, to the future of democracy around the world. That is the threat that Russia and its allies pose, and a Russia victory over Ukraine, uh, what it would mean. I thought it was interesting because there was a group of Republicans 
that were Chuck Schumer brought a bunch of people together to get a private classified briefing on Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. uh, Tom Cotton and other Republicans Mm -hmm. apparently walked out, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. very, very early, like, you know, 10 or so minutes into the process. Um, because and apparently they were like yelling at Schumer, like, why are we talking about Ukraine? You know, what about the border? You know, you got to talk about the border. And he was like, yeah, but this is a this is a briefing on Ukraine. And they were like, well, yeah, mm-hmm. but the border, the border. And then they all got up and and they walked out, which is the kind of behavior that, you know, we're more used to seeing from the Lauren Boberts and the Marjorie Taylor Greens. But supposedly one of the Republicans in that meeting asked, well, because, um, <clears throat> you know, the office of um, uh, management and budget came out and said they wrote the letter and they sent it to Mike Johnson. And the letter was like, dudes, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the month, there's no more money. There's no more. Mm-hmm. There's no more anything for Ukraine. And one of the Republicans in the meeting was apparently asked, well, what is what is that date? What is the like the drop dead date where if we don't agree by then, then we are really, you know, basically turning our back on Ukraine. Like 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 would they, we want to know how long we have to negotiate and throw a fit before we really have to suffer any consequences. That's what I took that to mean. I took that to mean that. um you know, whatever the date is, you can pretty much guarantee that they're going to go right up to it. As they have done with issue after issue after issue uh, throughout the entirety of President Obama's uh, terms in office uh, and the entirety of this administration, whether it was debt ceilings or funding the government. Um, and sometimes they they ignore those drop-dead dates and let government shut down, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever they think will get them more votes uh, from an increasingly extremist electorate uh, that they are helping to create. Well, it, 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 sounds, it sounds like I'm being overly harsh, but I'm simply describing the facts of the behavior of the Republican Party over the last several decades. Um, this is their strategy. It's been consistent. They've been public about it. They haven't hidden that that, that, that is their strategy. Uh, it is out in the open. It's intentional. It's purposeful. And it, for, sadly, for our, uh, the stability of our country, it's working with the public. We need to uh, take a break. We're going to continue to talk about Ukraine with Uh, Professor Joel Ostro, we're also going to take some of your calls when we come right back after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm talking to Benedictine University Professor Joel Ostro, who is an expert on Russia. We have been talking about the Ukraine war since it began. We have been talking about how Republicans are holding up funding for Ukraine, funding that will run out at the end of the month, holding it up because they want uh, uh, Democrats to consider more draconian measures at the border. Yes, I know. 
um, unrelated topics, but it's the club that they feel that they have right now, and they are swinging it. Uh, Joel, before we go to the phone lines, I want to look at the other side of this holdup of funding. Exactly what will this mean for Ukraine on the ground? So uh, Secretary Austin, I believe it was Secretary Austin, it did make clear that um, the I believe there's a roughly four billion dollars worth of uh, ammunition, uh, at least certain types uh, that has already been procured but not delivered, and those deliveries will still happen. Um, there were uh, was a counter report by a I'm not sure if it was the his counterpart in Ukraine Ukraine's uh, top military commander or or some other military official pushed back that there were uh, certain types of munitions uh, that Ukraine has been depending on from the West that uh, that are not part of that. Um, I would imagine that there could be some kind of shifting within those monies that were that were already appropriated. Um, but at least through the end of this month, uh, uh, Ukraine's going to continue to be receiving uh, weapons and mil- military supplies. Uh, there were previous promises, for example, of F-16s. Uh, what I have not been able to determine, uh, and I have been searching for the last couple days, can't get a straight answer, what about, say, the F-16 fighter jets, what about the tanks uh, that we have already promised uh, but that have a longer timeline? Have those items already been paid for and just need to be delivered, or were those awaiting? uh, How does that get accounted for Mm -hmm. in this budget battle? That remains fuzzy to me. Uh, No matter what, uh, so, so just to give everyone um, a little bit of a, a orientation, since the start of the war, uh, February 24th of uh, 2022, the United States has provided around $62 billion worth of aid. About $40 billion of that is military. The rest of it has been uh, budget assistance, humanitarian aid, um, some food aid, you know, various various non-lethal supplies, they call it. So it's been about 42 billion military, about 20 non-military. Uh, over that period, if you take that whole timeline of just under two years, that amounts to about three point uh, three, three tenths of a percent, between three tenths and four tenths of one percent of total U.S. budget spending. Uh, so very, very little. What the Biden administration has been asking for is authorization for an additional $60 billion. Authorization, meaning we could continue to provide military and non-military support up to $60 billion. It doesn't mean we would spend the whole $60 billion mm-hmm. in any particular time period. I don't know what the time period of the particular request is. I would imagine it's over the next 12 months. So if we were to commit $60 billion over the next 12 months... I believe of that first $60 billion, the authorization was $100 billion. So let's say this time we would spend a greater percentage of that $50 billion. We're talking about mm, 
maybe six-tenths of 1% of total U.S. budget spending. Now, six-tenths of a percent, that's significant in a, in a one-year period. Uh, but given these security implications for ourselves and, and our allies, uh, it is uh, more than reasonable. Uh, what we cannot yet determine, because it's too soon, is uh, what would it mean on the ground for Ukraine could other NATO members, for example, and other members of our broader coalition supporting Ukraine make up the difference should the United States waver? Uh, and then there are a number of questions. A, could they? Do they have the means, financial and, and technological? Do they have the military equipment? The answer to those things is probably yes. Uh, would they? Uh, hmm. Given the United States... Uh, what that would signify in terms of our movement back towards um, chaos uh, and destruction of our alliances, destruction of um, a U.S.-led uh, democratic uh, world, uh, without leadership, uh, the rest of, of the democratic world becomes weaker. And it is still the case the United States has the strongest economy, the strongest military, uh, and if we decide we don't want to play anymore, the game, in a sense, ends. Uh, and, and that's the real problem. Um, smart Republicans know this, but one can be smart and still reject uh, any sort of responsibility or responsible action. Or not uh, want to stick your neck out, because even uh, though mm -hmm. um, he has you know, publicly supported Ukraine, um, Mitch McConnell has told senators, this isn't Mike Johnson, you know, um, trying to round up the loonies in the Congress. Mitch McConnell told the senators that unless they get this some sort of border or something or other, that they vote, should no. vote against any mm -hmm. supplemental um, money for Ukraine, which is part of a, you know, President Biden tried to sort of fold in some Ukraine funding into this whole national security package that he wants them to vote on. And, you know, um, you know, Mitch McConnell, I don't know if he has become weaker or uh, just quieter, but, you know, this is a guy who could pretty much ruin your Senate career if he, if he told you to vote one way or the other way and you didn't do it. Oh, 100 uh, percent. And and. Make no mistake, this behavior has one purpose and one purpose only, given the realities of our politics today, to ensure a Donald Trump election to the presidency in November of 2024. That is what Mitch McConnell is publicly and aggressively and unwaveringly fighting for again. Uh, so any but even though he hates the guy, some kind of even though he hates the guy, even though he thinks the guy is an idiot and a moron, you think he's all in on Trump? I judge his actions, not his words. Uh, uh, I and think that's all anyone should judge. What is he doing? You can look at what he's saying, but now he's also saying these things. If the interest were, if the interest were, the future of our democracy and our constitution, and the stability and and uh, of our leadership role in the world, and and the democratic alliance, uh, 
partisan politics comes second to those things. He's making partisan politics first, uh, and the future of the country, the future of democracy is less important. It's more important that any Republican, including Donald Trump, win and, and that democracy be weakened so that Republicans can never lose again because it will no longer be an effective Democratic Party because they'll change the, they'll eliminate the Constitution as we know it. They've signaled this. Johnson has signaled this. Trump has signaled this. Heck, McCarthy before had signaled it. That is what they're about. And, and it's not just their words. It's by their actions. Again, if you go back to, uh, I do encourage people to, if, if not read the book, to read the articles, uh, numerous uh, opinion and commentary pieces and uh, news analysis pieces by Steve Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. That they're very clear in, in the ways in which our democracy is weakened and, and the responsibility for it talking not about words, but about the behavior over three decades. It has been a conscious process. In, uh, we, we have a little bit of time before we have to break for news, so uh, let's go to the phone lines. Uh, Earl from Hyde Park has been patiently waiting to join our conversation. Hi, uh, go ahead, Earl. Hi, Joan. Thank you for taking my call. I appreciate it. Happy holidays to you and your guest. Yes, thank you, Earl. Thank you. Uh, what I wanted to reflect on quickly is that I know you, we've talked about Ukraine, but uh, unfortunately, when we talk about Ukraine, you have to talk about global uh, uh, ramifications because everybody's watching how we are playing around with Ukraine. And it, uh, we don't fund them. We don't know what China's going to do. We don't know what Iran's going to do. I mean, it, it, it just doesn't stay locally. Uh, it, it's not just Russia. And so um, there are many eyes on what we are trying to do. And we were already uh, in trouble a little bit when Trump came in and he was trying to uh, break up uh, NATO a little bit. He was signifying that he was almost willing to uh, leave NATO. So what I wanted the professor to reflect on is uh, the funding is cheap compared to having to go to war to support yeah. uh, NATO companies are going into Taiwan. So that's what I wanted him to reflect on. Okay, though. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. Earl. you. Yeah. yeah, Earl, uh, you're, you're 100% right. And, and the intentions of, uh, uh, stated intentions of Trump now uh, and of his advisors, there was, there was a wonderful analysis published, uh, I believe it was in the New York Times a couple days ago, or maybe it was the Atlantic, uh, uh, warning that that uh, a next Trump presidency will be much more effective in in achieving these uh, destructive goals uh, because he has a much more uh, capable team of advisors who support those goals and chief among those uh, is demolishing NATO. Uh, so uh, the caller is one hundred percent correct. This isn't just and. and Zelensky has been, President Zelensky has been saying this from the beginning. This is not about Ukraine. It's not even just about Europe. It is about uh, the future of democracy versus uh, an increasing rise of authoritarianism. And what opposing Ukraine means when the Republican Party is doing it is signifying that they are an authoritarian party. And a victory for Russia over Ukraine is a victory for authoritarianism, not just in Russia, uh, but in the United States, in Brazil, in China, in Iran, 
uh, in Hungary, uh, Poland's electorate just narrowly uh, escaped uh, uh, electing a more authoritarian government a couple months ago, but that still remains a threat there. Uh, authoritarianism is on the rise uh, everywhere. Uh, and um, uh, this is uh, the wavering of support for Ukraine in the United States of America reflects a greater tolerance for authoritarian attitudes among the American populace. Uh, which is why I said, you know, despite the capabilities, what would the rest of the states who have been supporting Ukraine do, given the wavering American position? Because it, it's hard to see a future for uh, uh, for the democracies of the world uh, if the United States uh, is no longer a democracy. Yeah. Earl, thank you for that question. We have to take a break for news Political science professor Joel Ostro and I will be back to talk more after this break. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Professor Joel Ostro is here from Benedictine University. We have been talking about what is going on in Ukraine. And very interestingly, I was reading just a little while ago, I think it's uh, uh, posted uh, just today, just this afternoon, actually, in the Washington Post, that the United States has filed its first war crimes charges related to the Russia-Ukraine war, which, Joel, I didn't even realize that we could. I thought that, you know, it had to be like the people at The Hague decide if you've been guilty of war crimes. I didn't realize that we as a country could bring charges of of war crimes. Apparently, we are bringing them against four Russian soldiers accused of torturing an American in the Ukraine right. war, saying it was the first time the United States has brought an indictment based on a war crime statute um, for like decades. Um right. What do you know about this? So under international law, it depends uh, under uh, it depends what exactly the charges are and what uh, international charter falls under. Uh, but for example, uh, under the Genocide Convention, uh, any party, meaning any state that is signed on to the convention, and it's almost all states have, uh, if any state identifies another as having uh, perpetrated uh, uh, crimes of genocide, they're obligated under the, the convention uh, to take measures not only to uh, stop the genocide, but to prosecute and punish the offenders. Uh, so the same is true under uh, certain war crimes conventions or, or uh, international criminal law. The states that are parties to those laws uh, can enforce them. Uh, now, mostly this is symbolic. Uh, these four soldiers, presumably, uh, maybe one or more of them were uh, FSB officers. I mean, they're uh, uh, they're equivalent of uh, the former KGB. Uh, they are located either in Russia or Russian-occupied Ukraine. Uh, the odds of United States uh, law enforcement officials finding uh, or arresting and, and uh, extraditing these individuals for prosecution is somewhere between zero and zero. <laughs> so that's not going to happen. It's mostly symbolic. So 
it's oh, I should add uh, by the report, it is. It seems that this is that the American in question was not a combatant. He was not an American there fighting. Uh, I have not seen. I don't know if you found elsewhere, Joan, but I was unable to locate. And in earlier reports today, I I also did not hear uh, not only no name of the American, but not even any kind of organizational or even um, um, you know even in a general sense, what sort of on what sort of capacity this American was on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, it's all very murky. Yeah. Uh, we don't know if it was a journalist or uh, someone with a humanitarian organization like the Red Cross or something else. Or We just have no idea. Yeah, uh, they're, um, they're ve- being playing those cards very, very close to the vest. Yeah. Um, so if these charges, you say that, you know, because obviously we'll probably never get our hands on these guys, it's mostly symbolic. But if we did somehow get our hands on these guys, I assume the trial would take place here, not at the international court. Could go either way. Uh, hmm. There would probably be a discussion, uh, but the ICC is not. If the ICC has not issued an indictment, then there would be no cause or, or, or role for the ICC to play. Uh, they uh-huh. would have to indict the individuals. But the United States could encourage uh, an ICC indictment. There's there's nothing to to uh, prevent us from doing that. We could uh, take but, the but information that we have, a, yeah, and yeah. go to them. But most likely say. because the crimes were against an American citizen, it seems uh, that uh, that the Justice Department would probably prefer to to hold the trial in the United States. Usually, these things are tried in New York. Uh, these kinds of uh, international trials, uh, so um, that would that's how that would work, most likely. But this is all so hypothetical that. Um, yeah, it's not going to happen. I'm assuming that if an American, like, for instance, Malcolm Nance is a contributor in the mornings on Stephanie Miller's show. He has um, a military background. He knew a lot of the military in Ukraine. And when the conflict first started, he said, you know, I feel like I have to support them by more than just my words here. And he went over there for like six months. And um, I'm not quite sure where he was or what he did, but mm-hmm. He was, uh, every picture I saw of him, he was in full combat garb. Mm-hmm. Is, I would assume that there are different rules for shooting a military combatant than attacking a civilian. Isn't that where war crimes, um, I mean, I'm not saying that you can't be so horrific with other soldiers that war crimes couldn't be brought into play, but doesn't it usually focus more on what people have done with civilians? It, um or not. So if they were, well, there are uh, laws of war, the Geneva Conventions, uh, banning torture. Uh, <laughs> everyone in the United States of America ought to be familiar uh, with uh, uh, the controversies around treatments of combatants. Uh, enemy combatants uh, was the phrase of the, uh, the uh, individuals post 9-11 who were held in Guantanamo Bay uh, and subject to torture, uh, although we didn't call it torture for obvious reasons, because torture is illegal under the Geneva Conventions, even when it comes to combatants. Um, so there are things you cannot do to someone, whether they are combatants or non-combatants. Um, but in terms of being a target, uh, anyone who's uh, with uh, traveling with, whether they are carrying a weapon or not, uh, for example, uh, journalists who are traveling with um, fighting uh, units, uh, uh, in Ukraine, 
uh, know that Russia may be targeting them and may hit them, those those units, and, and depending on how close they are, either to the the artillery or or the fighters, uh, they could they could fall victim, uh, and that would certainly be the case. I would imagine uh, the person you are describing uh, was there uh, with uh, Ukrainian military, uh, and that that sort of makes him a, a potential target. One thing that surprised me uh, when reading this was that. For at least two of the four charged, the Russian soldiers charged with war crimes, for two of them, they know their names. Uh, and it says the other two whose full names are not yet known. Um, yeah. How, I mean, did you think that this is the victim coming forward and say, oh, yeah, these sure. are the guys that did this? Yeah, probably the victim, but but it would have to be corroborated by others. Uh, and, and obviously, we do not know the, you know, the the witnesses or the sources for that information. Uh, so I would imagine that the two with the full names were uh, at least unit or brigade commanders uh, in uh, the Russian, uh, whatever Russian military division or unit this we're talking about from uh, wherever this individual was located when he was captured and tortured, uh, and. That's why, as I said, because two of the names are known, those are most likely people who are from uh, uh, formal military units. The other ones might only be known by a pseudonym or a first name, and that suggests uh, that they were not from military but from uh, the FSB. Well, Mm -hmm. you know, you were were right in that— um, that this is probably a civilian of some kind, whether it's an aid worker or a j- or journalist, because Merrick Garland said the victim was not fighting in the conflict right. and under international right. law was considered a, quote, protected person. Protected. Yeah, so I doubt journalist, Joan. I mean, we would know if it was a journalist who had been captured and tortured in Ukraine, if it was an American, certainly if it was one working for an American, but even... Even if it wasn't for an American publication uh, or, or media outlet, I, I would think we would know. Um, but so that that leads one to wonder: uh, in what capacity was this this individual mm-hmm. there? Um, probably not a diplomat either. Uh, so so just we it, it's really not. There's no way to. It would just be rank speculation. It could, yeah. could be any number of. Uh, Professor Joel Ostro and I are going to take a break. We are going to be back with more on this in just a couple of minutes. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Benedictine University Professor Joel Ostro. We were talking about... An article uh, that was published this afternoon in the Washington Post about how the United States, the Department of Justice, has filed war crimes charges against four Russian soldiers for um, all we know about the victim is that they're a man and that they were a non-combatant. And these four Russian soldiers repeatedly beat the victim, made him think he was about to be killed, pointed the gun at the back of his head, then moved the weapon slightly and shot a bullet past his head. Uh, they photographed him naked. They said they were going to sexually assault him. And uh, it says here in the Washington Post, kidnapping and torturing 
a protected person would constitute a war crime. Uh So, Joel, you've probably seen the news today that not only are the women who've not yet been released by Hamas, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, they were and potentially still are being raped. Uh, But the Israeli Times came out today and said that many of the women who have already been released were sexually assaulted. (sighs) At some point with, you know, um, we don't know if the Americans who've been released are any of the people we're talking about. But if Americans were taken hostage by Hamas and and raped, it would seem that there would be more war crimes to be filed. Wouldn't it seem that way to you? Well, two things on that. Number one, um, it it is remains unclear to me because it remains unclear, at least by the interviews I've watched uh, from many of the released hostages, whether they were being held by Hamas or by uh, some other one of the other entities uh, that was involved in the uh, uh, the horrible uh, the horrible attacks on October seventh, um, uh, we do know. Uh, and, and I'm sure you, 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 if you haven't talked about already, you're aware of the um, the revelations a couple days ago uh, about uh, the. I don't even know what adjective to use for them. Uh, the barbaric acts committed on October 7th by the attackers, particularly at the music festival, um, just graphic res- uh, reports of really unimaginably gruesome actions uh, by those attackers. Again, we don't know if those were uh, Hamas directly or if they were other affiliated groups, Um, but uh, some of the most disgusting acts that I have ever, ever read about or heard about uh, in in a conflict zone – and, and unfortunately, I've, I've read a lot of pretty disgusting stuff that's happened uh, throughout time committed by, by soldiers. These are not soldiers, of course. Uh, these are terrorists, so let's not confuse that. Uh, although we see in Russia that those are, uh, on some level, they are soldiers committing these crimes. Uh, I guess to be fair, we don't know exactly who the individuals in Russia are. Are some of these uh, individuals involved in in the torture committed against this American? Uh, are those some of those released uh, convicts who would who who were released from long prison terms for violent crimes of of rape, murder, uh, and similar kinds of crimes, uh, who were then released from prison? Uh, on the condition that they go and fight in Ukraine. We just don't know. We don't know the backstory. Um, but either way, um, you are right that over the last 48 hours, we have, we've learned about uh, really difficult to, to process, to fathom crimes uh, against people in, in both of these, uh, these uh, conflicts, um, and not crimes committed at a distance, but crimes committed... Uh, at, at the closest possible proximity, um, and and again, the, if people are unaware of the the uh, crimes committed, the mass crimes committed against women, 
by the attackers on October 7th, uh, mass gang rape, mutilations, beheadings, decapitations, uh, surrounded by laughter and joy. Mm -hmm. These were obviously drug-crazed attackers. We know from some of the video footage that they were hyped up on, on any number of hallucinogenic drugs and, and, and uh, amphetamines-related, um, somehow proclaiming themselves to be acting in the name of some religion. I have no idea what the hell religion that could possibly be. Yeah. world is... Um a very scary place for a lot of people right now. And um, just because we have been focusing on Gaza doesn't mean we can forget about the harm and the suffering that's going on in Ukraine and indeed other places. Uh, Boy, that's right, Joan, world. if I may. Uh, uh, remember when, when the, uh, the war in the Middle East broke out, at first I described this as a gift to Putin, uh, because it would distract attention and perhaps uh, support for Ukraine. And then after a while, I started to wonder, because American attention to Ukraine had waned, my, my naive, and maybe it was just wishful thinking, was that maybe that strategy would backfire on Putin, and it would provide cover for Republicans to, to be responsible without paying some kind of political price from an extremist electorate. I don't know why I thought that. I thought it might give cover to McConnell and maybe even other members of the House to to stand up to or against the extreme wing of the party and to work with Democrats and pass the support for Ukraine and do so quietly without repercussions from the extremists. Uh, but boy, was that naive. Uh, and it seems like it's just um, it's just the problems of our own politics are, are going to uh, to make things much worse for us. Uh, here at home. Well, that's kind of what we're seeing play out right now on, yep. the, on the big stage, yep. you know, um, Tom Cotton, Mike Johnson saying, yeah. you know, you uh, were, you can't get our support on Ukraine unless you start entertaining some of our ideas about things that have to happen at uh, at the border. And but that's um, a joke. It's, it, they're lying. Uh, Mike Johnson is not cast. Every time there's been a vote about supporting Ukraine, he has voted no. Mm-hmm. Every single vote. Yeah. Uh, whether it was part of a package, uh, or a larger budget package, or a standalone, it didn't matter. If Ukraine was in there, he has voted no 100% of the time. So yep. uh, he would have pushed for the border concessions and then would have opposed, uh, <laughs> is my conviction, uh, if Ukrainian funding were, were a part of it. It's uh, it's looks it's it looks like it's going to be a big game of chicken. Um, who's going to blink first or what are Democrats willing to sacrifice so that the Republicans can at least, you know, tell their uh, constituents, oh, look, we got these concessions. Um, you what know, the Republicans there- are demanding on immigration is a non-starter. The, the Democrats have no choice but to oppose it because it is it is. It is the most extreme garbage uh, that even Republicans opposed during the Trump administration, and now they're supporting it. Um, 
it, it would violate every principle norm of our, of our history as a country, uh, not only on the issue of immigration, but of our own basic values. Um, and if it means the country goes down, at least the country goes down with Democrats standing for what the country is supposed to stand for. Um, because, because to give that up, then, then what's the point? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it, what, they, what the Republicans are demanding uh, about the border, they know is a non-starter, could never get through the Senate, would never survive, would never uh, be signed into law by a president. Um, and and it's, it's, it's simply just disgusting. If people want to read what their proposals are, read them. Uh, but they're, they're horrifying. So top to bottom. So uh, we're going to be. This uh, is like doom and gloom with Joan and Joel. We should get a sponsor, like from from the makers of Prozac and Wellbutrin. Yeah, you know, uh, for the for the companies that uh, will help you build your survival shelter uh, somewhere yeah, off too. into the woods uh, and teach you how to hunt your own game. I guess I can't That's... believe you keep inviting me on. <laughs> Well, one of these days, one of these days, I hope sooner rather than later, we're going to have a conversation where we can look back on these events because they will have wrapped up. They will be uh, they will be ended. And you and I can talk about how the rebuilding of Ukraine is going. That would be delightful. (laughs) Let us hope. Yeah, really. Democrats go out and vote and vote Democratic. Yes. (laughs) Yes, in 2024. I mean, think about it. If we had a solid, uh, a, a solid majority in the House and the Senate, and mm-hmm. we had the White House, just think of what a wonderful world it would be. Yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Joel. Uh, I hope I haven't depressed you too much today. <laughs> Likewise, thank you, Joan. Okay. Um, we are going to take a break, and when we come back. I know last month, you know, lots of times organizations will designate a month or a day as their day to draw attention to their cause. And last month, November, was National um, Alzheimer's Month. And um, we did a little bit of, uh, you know, focus on it, but, you know, uh, not a huge amount. This is a political show, not a medical show. So initially, when the Alzheimer's Association reached out about doing another interview, you know, I was kind of hesitant. And then they said, well, but our spokesperson is someone who has been living with Alzheimer's. Now, that's that's different. And that's a story I want to hear. I hope you do, too. We're going to be right back with that after a break. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. As I said, November was Alzheimer's Awareness Month, and we talked a little bit about that. But I'm going to be talking about Alzheimer's again because the spokesperson for the National Alzheimer's Association who wants to join us today and talk about this is someone who is suffering from early-stage Alzheimer's. Rebecca Chop is here to uh, share with us her story, her journey. Rebecca, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, thank you, Joan. Thank you for having me. And, uh, yeah, I used to live in Chicago, so I'm happy to be 
on air with you. Well, we're happy to have you here. You know, most people who get a, a diagnosis like this, you know, they, I don't know, they want to gather their family and friends and they may create a bucket list. But it is remarkable for you to choose to speak out again and again and and tell your story of uh, the kind of diagnosis that a lot of us really live in fear of. Talk to me about how you got diagnosed. Well, I uh, was working as chancellor of the University of Denver, and I went in for my annual physical. She asked me how I was doing. I said, great, I'm just starting to sleep a lot. And, oh, odd thing, I got lost on the way to your office. She was so wonderful. She said at the end of the exam, could I give you a mini cognitive exam? And I said, oh, sure. I knew I would pass. I always passed exams, but I didn't. So, you know, long story short, after a couple of months, I went to a neurologist. The first neurologist told me I had Alzheimer's, and she told me I wouldn't button my shirt in a couple of years. I thought I'd better get a second opinion. So I did, and the second neurologist said, yep, you have Alzheimer's. But there's so much research now about what you can do. Lifestyle, emerging medications. So I took that second neurologist very seriously. How long ago was it that you were told that shortly you wouldn't be able to button your blouse? It was four and a half years ago, and it was it was totally devastating. I mean, I, this, you know, disease has no cure, and we have all seen people with Alzheimer's. My mother and grandmothers had it. You have a family I, history. I, a, a big one, yeah. Did you worry because of your family history that, that this would happen to you? Uh you know, I did. I think my greatest fear throughout my life was losing my mind. Um, I don't know. It just, you know, all the movies where people kind of lost their mind, mm-hmm. you know, well, with me, my mother and my grandmother. Um, so I had this fear, but I didn't see it coming at the same time. Wow. So after you met that second neurologist who said, yeah, you have Alzheimer's, but, but there's, you know, we can, we can try to, um, we can try to implement some strategies. What did you do? How did you change your life? Well, I, I went from that and I have a friend who studies Alzheimer's and she helped me five years ago. There wasn't much information. Now there's more. And so, you know, the lifestyle changes are diet. So Mediterranean diet with a version of it called mind diet, which is blueberries, walnuts, lots of legumes, no processed foods. Exercise, exercise, exercise. I exercise about two hours a day. Wow. A lot of that is walking my dog. I used it as an excuse to get a puppy. He's an (laughs) active dog. (laughs) He's almost three now. He's very active. 
But um, I do that, and then I do strength training and uh, some cardio and choreography uh, kind of things. Um, Creativity, so lots of new research, emerging research shows that when the brain starts losing those connections in one area, they can form them in another so I may lose them in short-term memory, but I may be able to form new connections through creativity. So I took up painting, <laughs> social engagement, and for me, spirituality. I've heard that, that uh, well, there's, all, there's been research for a long time that even patients whose Alzheimer's um, or cognitive impairment is so severe that they can no longer speak, if they've spent their whole life playing the piano, oftentimes they can still play the piano. And that's um, music. I, I, I don't know about crea- yeah. creativity in general, but certainly music has been uh, an area of the brain that seems to resist Alzheimer's longer than any other part of the brain. Is that the part that you're trying to stimulate with your painting? Yes. Uh, So painting, uh, for me, both uh, reduces inflammation and calms me down and and forms new neurons. But I also listen a lot to music because you're absolutely right. The fascinating thing about music is it's not in one area of the brain. It's in multiple areas. And we've seen this, right? My husband's a minister. He used to go to, you know, senior citizens' homes, what we used to call nursing homes. And if he would sing hymns with them, people who couldn't recognize their loved ones could sing those hymns. Mm. So in the, I believe you were 67 when you were diagnosed. You're 70, mm-hmm. 71 now. Correct. Um, have you seen changes? Yeah, but they're pretty minor. It's more short-term memory. I have to be very careful with calendar. If I do something like a complicated recipe, you know, I have to really concentrate or have someone with me. So it's that very short-term memory. I don't drive. I was driving till about a year ago. But I realize that my short-term memory and maybe my uh, reaction time could have weakened. I don't know that for sure about my reaction time, but I don't drive anymore. So, but it's minor. I I just wrote a book on my experience with Alzheimer's. I am active on a number of Alzheimer's boards. So this Lifestyle intervention really works for me. And, of course, we're just on the edge of medications. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, what's the name of the book? Still Me, mm-hmm. Accepting Alzheimer's Without Losing Yourself. It'll be out in February. Um, I want to go back to something that caused... One of the comments you made that caused your doctor to give you a cognitive test, you said you were sleeping a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not necessarily something that I've heard 
as an indicator of cognitive impairment. Was that an unusual symptom or is that just a regular symptom I just am not familiar with? You know, I think uh, the research, which is just exploding, now realizes that um, symptoms like sleep may show up before symptoms of memory loss. There used to be no way or or the knowledge wasn't good enough to suspect Alzheimer's until you were really in a more middle stage. Now things anything that's different may uh so so sometime I have a friend who had early onset Alzheimer's and she just started having a little trouble speaking. So I I had early stage at a relatively young age, but still over 65, and mine was sleep. So anything outside your normal pattern is a signal that it could be neurological. Hmm. I know that um, you have read a lot of the current Alzheimer's research. Um, For those who do have a family history and those who, who don't, is there advice that you would give people um, to change their lifestyle now to make Alzheimer's less likely? Well, I think, um, you know, adopt a healthy lifestyle as soon as you can. Keep your brain active. Learn new things. Exercise. Keep, build your body to prolong your brain is my phrase. <laughs> um, eat well. Avoid processed foods. Keep socially engaged. All of these things can build a healthy brain. And, you know, much of the research is showing that if people could do that, which is very anti-agriculture right now, people may be able to prevent Alzheimer's until they're 85, 90. And, you know, we're also going to get a cure one of these days. But yes, a brain-healthy lifestyle is what you want to adopt. I've been reading a little bit that there might be a test coming that could identify Alzheimer's biomarkers. Um, Correct. Are you familiar with that? What can you tell us about that? Yes, uh, there will be. I mean, this is this is uh, in numerous clinical trials. Um, there are places you can go and even pay for it and, and get tested. But the biomarker is such a wonderful, it's a game changer because it won't be kind of a detective story. Is this person acting different? It's some, the biomarker will be a blood test you can take. It will be inexpensive. It will it will be able to reach multitudes of people. Right now, if you're living in a rural area or you're lower income, it's going to be hard to detect it. This will be a game changer. And it will also mean that people as early as maybe 45 will be able to know if they're likely to develop Alzheimer's. We think, the research says, that Alzheimer's actually starts developing 10 or 15 years before the symptoms show. Hmm. So this is, this is revolutionary. And I think it'll be about two years, but I did read something the other day that it could be as early as a year and a half. 
And this test that they're working on, um, would it just say, would it say to somebody, like a lot of the genetic testing, it'll be like, well, you have this mutation, which means that X illness is, you know, 20% more likely to develop in you. Or is this going to be the kind of test where if you um, take this test, it's like you either have it or you don't. Do you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like uh, they Correct. can tell me whether or not I have kidney disease, but when they do genetic tests, they can only give me percentages. Okay, well, this shows you've got instead of a 20% chance for this illness, you have a 40% chance. Do you know how, uh, anything more about how the test will work? So what I understand is that if you're, say, 65 and you take this test, it will show whether or not you are developing Alzheimer's. What I have read is that when you're younger, it probably can only show you have a propensity to. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the, for the people over 65, this is just a game changer. Wow. Because it's just one drop of blood along with your other blood test, right? It's just one test with your annual blood test. So it's this, a game changer. It really is. This lifestyle you've created for yourself where you um, you eat a Mediterranean diet, you add in certain brain foods, you don't eat processed foods, you exercise more, you're trying to creatively stimulate your brain. How much of that did you come up with yourself and how much did you uh, come up with on the advice of your neurologist? Well, my neurologist outlined all of them in, you know, a three-sentence prescription. She also told me to live with joy. Um, but I think that's spirituality, you know. But, but uh, I then did a lot of research. And one of the reasons I wrote my book was so that people didn't have to go through all I did because it goes into detail about these. But I read medical journals. I, I must have read about 45 or 50 books on Alzheimer's. Um, I talked to people. I got connected to the Alzheimer's Association uh, with people. So I did a lot of research. But I go back to that prescription, my Dr. Gabe, and it was off there. Hmm. Is it hard to live with joy when you know that you have a disease that where the very essence of yourself is going to slip away over time? You know, thank you. That's such an honest and good question. And I think that's what people with Alzheimer's or other chronic diseases ask themselves. Um, the more you practice it, the easier it becomes. I mean, it's still hard. I, I've had a couple rough days this week, just bad days, you know, just like, and you can immediately go into that kind of despair. But I find that the more I can practice, I call it abiding, being aware, living with awe, uh, being connected to, you know, mystery and, and all, whatever you want to call it, in my everydayness, putting it first, every moment I can, helps. It's a muscle you have to build. But yes, there are bad days. No, no one can get away from that. Yeah. 
I think you are just amazing. Um, um, I was looking um, a little bit deeper into your biography, and you know, you have a PhD from the University of Chicago. Do you think the fact that you were so—I mean, that's that's like you're like the brightest of the bright. Um, do you think that has helped you just being so darn smart? Well, um, I will say this: we we know that the research correlates uh, between continual learning and, and, and to an extent, education. But there was a famous nun study in 1990. It's, it's a great book. And it studied four or five, you know, groups of nuns, same, same order, but different convent. And, and some of these had, you know, college educations, maybe some high school. And what they really found was it was attitude, engagement, learning, creativity, eating well. Um, so I, I think for me, the education certainly helped. I built a large, what's called a cognitive reserve. But I don't think that the research is indicating everybody going forward has to have a PhD from the University of Chicago, although I think that would be the best thing in the world because <laughs> <laughs> I love that experience. But, but I really think it's about learning to learn and keeping that mind curious and engaged and having an attitude of, you know, positivity, joy, abiding, whatever you want to call it. Well, I've got to tell you, you have um, you have really blown me away. You have impressed me Thank you. for what you say in your research, but also, I don't know, I think it must be really hard to to be um, so public about something that is that so many people are so afraid of and that is sometimes so difficult to talk about. And um, Rebecca Chop, you are my hero. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And there's a terrible stereotype that once you get diagnosed, you're going to fall apart. But, you know, I'm here to say uh, that doesn't have to be. You can have some good years and you can live those with joy and live them well. Well, thank you for sharing that message with us, whether or not you have a chronic illness. That's a message that a lot of us need to hear and need to hear often. Thank you for sharing your story with us and your amazing journey. I really appreciate your being here today. Thank you. We are going to remember her book is called Still Me. Look for it. We're going to take a break and wrap things up right after this. Patty is uh, not going to be in the driver's seat today, but former state senator Dan Katowski is filling in for her. And that should be fascinating. I also have a programming note for me. I am not going to be here Friday, but you're um, going to be treated to the wonderful Richard Chu. Richard Chu from the family meeting, which is on WCPT. Every weekend, Richard is going to be in my chair, um, and I'm sure he's going to do a wonderful job. You know, I told Richard that what we usually do on Fridays is we open up the phone lines and talk to you about the news of the day and the news of the week. And I want you to know that Richard has said that he is going to do just that. 
So I know there are some of you who wait to share your thoughts uh, for with me on Friday. And I want you to know that Richard has said that he is going to continue that. And at the beginning of the show, he is going to open up the phone lines and talk to you, the listeners. So don't feel because it's not me that for uh, some reason you cannot call in. Okay. Sounds good. Um, well, after uh, listening to Rebecca, uh, I think we all have a lot to be thankful for and happy about. And, you know, nobody's life is perfect, but um, I think we can all find some degree of contentment, don't you think? I mean, if she can, she's had a diagnosis of Alzheimer's for four years and she is upbeat, then I think we can we can follow her example. What do you say? So uh, stay safe, my friends. I will be here tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow is Thursday, for those of you keeping track, and I will be here tomorrow. It is Monday that I am going to be off, and Richard Chu is going to be filling in for me. I will be here tomorrow, Thursday, and then I will be back again Monday, December 11th. So, um, you know what? Find something to be thankful for tonight. That's what, that's what I'm going to do. You know? A good book, a good friend, taking the dog for a walk, whatever it is. Stay safe, my friends, and have a great evening. Good night.